Are you interested in finding a new dimension for your horticultural passion? Well, my guest today is Peter D'Amato, and he is the author of a, a newly revised book, The Savage Garden, and we're going to talk about flesh-eating plants, yes, carnivorous plants for gardens, indoors, and out, right here on Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. Peter D'Amato has been growing carnivorous plants for nearly 40 years, and his nursery, California Carnivores, is home to the world's largest collection of plants that lure, catch, and digest animals, mostly insects, but others. One species has been known to digest a rat. Carnivorous plants always make us think of the Venus flytrap, but most of these plants are passive. They do not close around their prey. Growing weird and unusual plants appeals to many gardeners, but these species and hybrids are often also beautiful, with stunning leaves and frequently elaborate flowers. For 15 years, Peter's book, The Savage Garden, has been the number one resource for growing carnivorous plants. Now, there is a new, fully revised edition with over 200 illustrations, and it includes the latest developments and discoveries in the carnivorous plant world, and Peter, I want to welcome you to Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Thank you very much, Ken. It's great to talk to you again. Well, uh, the first thing I want to know is, how did you get interested in carnivorous plants? As I tell the story in the book, in the 1960s, I loved old monster movies. I subscribed to Famous Monsters magazine. It was a great magazine back in the 50s to the 70s. They always had these advertisements for Venus flytraps in the back of the magazine. You know, they would sell fake vomit and all kinds of weird <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I had seen Little Shop of Horrors, the original Roger Corman 1960 version. And uh, anyway, I, I had, had alligators and turtles and lizards. And I had my mom write out a check, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I thought we could afford another mouth to feed. <laughs> it was winter time. I remember I was living on the coast of New Jersey, and it was winter but I had my first plant, a parlor palm. I was like 11 or 12, and uh, this plant loved it on my bright, you know, shaded windowsill. Um, well, the flytraps arrived. They were all, you know, like bulbs, and I followed the instructions. I kept it next to my heater in my bedroom. They basically just said to keep the plants wet in a bright area, and a few deformed leaves came up, and then they just rotted. But then the following spring in school, um, to make a long story short, this, uh, I volunteered to do a report on the flytrap, and this kid in my class said he knew where these bug-eating plants grew. And since I lived on the coast of New Jersey, I kind of found it hard to believe. But it was uh, spring, school was about ready to be let out, and he took me to this lake right in the middle of town. And there were all of these weird plants that looked like they came from outer space. I later found out through National Geographic articles in the library by Paul Zoll uh, that these were pitcher plants and sundews, and they just took hold of my life ever since. Oh. So that's sort of the Pinelands, I guess. Yes, yes. I lived right on the edge of the Pine Barrens, which has a lot of bogs uh, with a lot of carnivorous plants. And that's one of the things that's really surprising. Um, many people assume these plants are tropical. And, of course, there are a lot of beautiful tropical carnivorous plants. 
like the Nepenthe pitcher plants. Um, however, the vast majority of carnivorous plants are actually, they come from North America. Mm -hmm. um, it's here in North America that the Venus flytrap grows, only around Wilmington, North Carolina. All the American pitcher plants, most of them are in the southeast. Uh, one species grows all the way up through Canada. We have sticky-leaved butterworts. We have plenty of sundews. Um, and on the west coast, we also have the cobra plant, which is related to the American pitcher plants back east. So my point is, is that a lot of these plants are easy to grow, usually outdoors. You know, they go dormant. They need frost. And if you live in a really cold area, you might have to protect something like a Venus flytrap for the winter time. Especially if you grow it in a container that might crack. And we, we'll talk about that right. in a second. But you mentioned the California ones, and th those are Darlingtonia. Is that right? Yes, Darlingtonia californica. Where does that name come from? Do you know? Yeah, um, it was discovered in the 1800s. I believe it was Brackenridge who was on an expedition um, to Mount Shasta. And he cut some of these leaves off because he was the botanical collector. And uh, he noted that they, they were attacked by Native Americans and they started running. And he noticed how a butterfly was flying after one of these cobra plants. And he realized that these plants were related to the Saracenia on the East Coast. And it was named for a doctor named Darlington actually never had anything to do with uh, carnivorous plants directly. <laughs> it's funny how those things are. Um, and you said the word easy, and that's something I do want to talk about. You know, usually in gardening, I think instant and easy are bad words. But I've been growing pinguicula indoors, the tropical ones, and Saracenia right. species and hybrids outdoors in containers, all in containers. And, uh, well, frankly, I killed many of them, or, you know, enough uh, until I started using rainwater instead of my alkaline well water. And since I switched to collecting rainwater, it's been great. And I grow them all in containers. But I, I would like to hear about some of the ones that you think are maybe the best ones to start with, indoors and out. Um, well, first of all, you do make out a very good point, and that's water quality. Uh, carnivorous plants do what they do because they grow in very nutrient-poor soils, which are often sandy or very peaty, <clears throat> you know, sphagnum peat moss, uh, which is very acidic. And if you do have hard water with a lot of minerals or very alkaline water, it will slowly poison the plant. So collected rainwater, uh, distilled water, reverse osmosis water, which is uh, you know, one of those under-the-sink purifiers, mm -hmm. That's often required, and you generally don't have to fertilize the plants, particularly if they're outdoors. Um, the easiest ones, you know, there are actually quite a number of them, but I would look at some American pitcher plants, the Saracenia. Uh, there's eight species, a multitude of varieties, and countless hybrids. And uh, there are also a lot of hybrids that uh, we at my nursery, California Carnivores, we actually breed for extra cold tolerance. Hmm. There are some species like Saracenia purpurea, subspecies purpurea, which grows from New Jersey all the way north through the Great Lakes and scattered areas in Canada. 
and we will use that plant and hybridize it with other cold-tolerant Saracenia, like the endangered species Oreophila, which uh, grows on the extreme northern Alabama border in the mountains, where temperatures could drop down to near zero degrees. Uh, we've also used the northernmost yellow trumpet plant, Saracenia flava, which grows up into uh, southern Virginia. It's also known all the way down through the Gulf Coast. Um, so there are a lot of plants that can be grown even in places like New England and the Great Lakes, especially if they're in the ground in a bog garden. Mm -hmm. um, open container plants, as you mentioned, they could crack from deep freezes. So it's best to move those to maybe a partly heated porch or if you have a, a bright window in a garage for the winter. Um, bogs that are in the ground uh, often will survive uh, even unexposed, like if they're covered with snow. But some people will throw hay or mulch or uh, burlap over the bogs as they go dormant in, in late autumn, like November, you know, before the big freezes come. And then you can remove the covering, you know, after big freezes occur. But if you live someplace like, you know, North Carolina, uh, Alabama, uh, most of California and the Oregon and Washington coasts. Many of these plants thrive right outdoors, always as potted or container plants, either sitting in bowls or trays of purified water, or if it's an undrained container, you do have to water it rather frequently. Well, you said, you said it just now, uh, sitting in water, but you mean in a saturated medium of some kind. Yeah, the primary mediums for the majority of these plants usually is about 80% sphagnum peat moss mixed with either 20% perlite or washed play sand or horticultural sand. Mm -hmm. Play sand for sandboxes is a good uh, substance. Um, <clears throat> you have to be very careful these days at a very annoying thing that's been occurring, which is companies that are adding fertilizers into peat moss oh, well, and even perlite. You know, carnivorous plants don't like minerals in the soil, so try to find unadulterated sphagnum peat. And uh, you mix this with water until it's like soft mud and cover the holes of any container you might use with uh, long fiber sphagnum moss, which is what peat moss comes from. That'll keep the soil from like leaking out. And then the pots are generally sitting in a couple of inches of water all the time, hmm. uh, even when they go dormant in winter and it may turn to ice. Um, and that's really all you have to do is is have them sitting in water and then weed them, you know, and trim them. One very important thing is that virtually all carnivorous plants are sun lovers. If you're growing an American pitcher plant or a Venus flytrap or sundews, uh, which are sticky plants with tentacles. They often all grow together in the wild, but they grow in rather sunny locations. They avoid shade. They grow in open sphagnum bogs or grassy wetland savannas in perhaps the Carolinas or Georgia or the Florida Panhandle. And uh, aside from some you know, grasses and the occasional longleaf pine tree, uh, they really like a lot of sun. 
Right. I'm speaking with Peter D'Amato, who is the owner and operator of California Carnivores, the uh, supplier, provider, mail-order nursery, and also a nursery that people can visit, uh, and has the largest collection of plants that lure, catch, and digest animals and are beautiful. And he's also the author of the revised version, edition of The Savage Garden. And we're talking about carnivorous plants. And... Uh, it's interesting what something that you said, which is to put the container in, in another container filled with water, and I haven't done that. I ha I've top-dressed mine with whole sphagnum, mm -hmm. and then when that starts to get light-colored, it tells me it's time to water. But I think your idea is easier, <laughs> just to set it well, in a little... Yeah, go ahead. The primary reason we recommend that is that, you know, at our nursery, we have a lot of undrained containers you know, miniature bog gardens, as well as large bog gardens outdoors that are lined with pool liners. However, <clears throat> if you go away for a few days on a vacation or holiday, if it's hot and dry out, and if you don't have somebody dependable to water your container, um, they are liable to dry out and the plants will die. Mm -hmm. If you grow them in a pot that have holes in them, then you could always move them to a much larger water container while you're gone. You could even flood them under a couple of inches of water. Um, and all of this is just to make sure that the soil does not dry out. Well, uh, we, we don't think of it very often. A lot of people try to grow water plants in a shady situation, which is, doesn't work. <laughs> and if, if you think about it, a plant that's, got a, that's gonna be wet all the time really can tolerate a whole lot of sun. And yeah. they do need sun. But indoors, the, there's they don't, I mean, you can't give them that kind of sun, and there are a lot of uh, wonderful carnivorous plants that you can grow even on a windowsill. And I'm just well, going. There's not a. There's not a lot. Well, uh, um, just let me tell you about the ping. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know you're going to talk do about great it. on windowsills. Yeah. Because I just got. Uh, is is it Esseriana? Pingricula Esseriana. Esseriana. Mexico. What a plant! Yeah. I love it. Yes. That plant really thrives on windowsills. You know, they're small, only about an inch or so across. They feed on little fungus gnats and things. They're very helpful uh, if you grow orchids on a partly sunny windowsill. And uh, some of the Mexican butterworts can be very prolific in clumping and stuff. One thing with the Mexican butterworts, which are great sunny windowsill or terrarium plants, um, is that during the winter in Mexico, they undergo, they undergo a dry season. So most of them will turn into succulents. And it's not really a dormancy, but they change their leaves from being sticky and carnivorous to succulent leaves. Mm. And during those few months, usually December through March or April, uh, keep them a little bit drier. And usually that's also their flowering season. It starts usually in late winter. And that's what Mexican butterworts are famous for their beautiful flowers, which are reminiscent of African violets. Well, and uh, you started to say there aren't a lot, and we should talk about that. And before we go back to indoors on the outdoors, can you sort of describe a pitcher plant? Just so we, because this is radio, and so we have an idea yes. of what they look like, and people can also go to Kendra's uh, Real Dirt com and see pictures of some of the plants we're talking about but give, give us an idea well we hear the phrase pitcher plant and that does tip us off a little bit 
um, there's eight species of American pitcher plants. Most of them, in fact, all of them except for two species, are generally upright tubular hollow leaves that have lids over them. Um, these lids help to keep rainwater from entering the pitcher and diluting their digestive acids and enzymes. Uh, they go through a dormancy, and then in late winter and early spring, when they're mature, meaning five to eight years old, they send up truly beautiful flowers that are tall uh, from one to four inches across. Mm -hmm. They hang upside down with either yellow or red petals. There's also a white variety. And they flower first because they don't want to catch their pollinators. And almost immediately after flowering, then the first pitchers of the season open. And they continue to produce pitchers until autumn. Spring pitchers will start to turn brown in midsummer. You could trim off the old brown parts, but they are covered in nectar. And the nectar is also drug. And nectar-feeding insects like house flies and ants, if they could get over, you know, water trays, uh, they will be very attracted uh, to these pitcher plants. And they drink the nectar. They get intoxicated. Some of them are led into tricky openings that have light windows that trick the insect into thinking it could fly out. And they end up getting drunk and tumbling down into these hollow tubes where they can't escape. Um, the tubes have a very waxy interior. And the insects die, and the plants produce acids and enzymes that slowly break down the soft parts of the insect. And that's where they get their, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus and other minerals that aren't in the soil where they grow. Um, one other species, one that grows from the southeast all the way up into Canada, is the purple pitcher plant. That was the plant that I found in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And those pitchers are very beautiful, but they do sit on the ground, and they have this beautiful wavy collar that's open to the sky, so they catch rainwater. And, uh, you know, in most areas it rains naturally, which will fill up the pitchers with water like they do in the wild. But if you live in, you know, California or Oregon, you'll have to add some water periodically by hand. And purple pitcher plants primarily drown their prey. Insects drink nectar along the collar. They hold on to these spiny little needle-like hairs that are very slippery, and then they fall in and drown and become food for the plant. Wow. So most people think that they all have, are filled with water <clears throat> and that they all drown their prey, but as you're saying, it's just those purpurea or the purpurea, I guess it's purpurea subspecies purpurea, uh, the, those yeah, flat ones. The southern one is the southern one is purpurea venosa, purpurea, uh, which is a rather fatter looking uh, plant. That's it, it's incredible, and it's it, for somebody who hasn't grown any of these plants, it's a whole nother world of plants to grow. Fascinating plants and beautiful plants, and fantastic in containers. And you talked about how one could have a bog, but really, it's so much easier to have a dedicated carnivorous plant container as long as you have a place to winter it over. Because I, I had a little problem with that one year because the, we had a very warm winter and they went through, they were gorgeous, but the next winter was extra cold and I lost about 70% of them. So I'm, I'm learning, 
but I'm excited about the ones inside and I'm excited about the ones outdoors. And uh, I, I'm reading your newly revised uh, edition of the Savage Garden. Uh, is, uh, t tell me anything else you'd like to tell me before we have to say goodbye. Yeah, I, I do want to mention that <clears throat> you can find tropical pitcher plants for sale in general nurseries, and we sell a lot of them. Those are the Nepenthes. They come primarily from Southeast Asia. Most of them are mountain plants, so they can do very well at room temperature rather than, you know, tropical hothouse conditions. But they also uh, can grow on a windowsill year-round. They need intensely bright light or partly sunny conditions. And they also do excellent under grow lights, um, as well as in terrariums with grow lights. But they're, uh, they're very exotic, and some of them can get very large, too. Uh, but that's another one, you know, that is suitable for a windowsill. Well, and there's some hybrids of those I've been seeing in the nurseries and hanging baskets, and they seem to be a lot easier to grow than some of the other ones. I include uh, the two most popular ones in my book, Nepenthes Miranda, and another one that's erroneously called Nepenthes Aleda. It's actually a, a hybrid with Aleda and Ventricosa. Um, both of those can do extremely well in you know, what they call Florida rooms or sun rooms or intensely bright, humid bathroom windows. Um, those plants are mostly propagated by stem cuttings in massive greenhouses, and they are sold from Paris to Hong Kong. Hmm. Almost all the other ones that are smaller are usually tissue-cultured plants and, of course, you know, sometimes seed-grown, but growing them from seed can take quite a while. Well, it, as I said, it's just a whole new world, new to many gardeners, and I've been speaking with Peter D'Amato, the author of the Savage Garden, and also the proprietor of California Carnivores. And I know a lot of people are going to go to your website, californiacarnivores.com. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It's, as thank always, you, fascinating. Thank you very much. Whether you're interested in trying your hand at growing flesh-eating plants, or if you're an experienced enthusiast looking to learn about the latest developments, the latest cultivated varieties, the latest hybrids, and new cultural advice. This classic book, The Savage Garden, has everything you need to grow your very own little garden of horrors. And I know that Peter D'Amato wouldn't mind my saying that because uh, he, has, he has quite a special interest in gardens of horrors. I think the idea of a plant with jaws that closes around its prey is, is irresistible to a young teenager. I guess it's the botanical version of maybe a video game. But the, the Venus flytraps are really hard to grow, and they can, you can grow them in containers as long as you winter them in a place that's, uh, that's, that's similar to the not-too-cold areas uh, around North Carolina where they come from. But that's not really the easiest plant to start with, and there are plenty of easy carnivorous plants to try. And you can learn about those plants in the new edition of The Savage Garden, Cultivating Carnivorous Plants. The original version uh, got a book award from the American Horticultural Society and also a Quill and Trowel Award from the Garden Writers Association of America. And now it's 15 years after that first book came out and it, it went into many printings and now we have this new edition where you can see pictures of 
pretty much all of the different carnivorous plants and also find out uh, cultural information, how to grow them. And, uh, and it is pretty easy if you follow those simple directions. And the things that we talked about were to have a, an extremely acidic growing medium and not to use alkaline or mineral water that comes either from your tap and chlorine too, or from, in my case, the well. And as soon as I switch to rainwater, uh, no problem. And the plants are, they're really beautiful. They're stunning. And they do do what they do. And I have to work on my pinguiculas, or pings as the experts call them, or the aficionados. Uh, California carnivores is the source for just about the widest variety of carnivorous plants. And I recommend that you visit that website to learn more. And join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. We may not be talking about plants that eat things, but plants that we eat. 